0: Hello. Just before the episode starts proper, I wanted to explain why it's taken so long for this episode. First of all, I did explain at the start of the first segment of this episode, which was uploaded a couple of weeks ago, as a separate segment that I'd had technical problems for a while, which delayed production. And so I uploaded that segment on its own to get something out there, which was actually very important. And as you'll hear, if you've not already heard it, skip to one hour awake if you have, concerns the lack of evidence that SARS-CoV-2, which they say causes COVID-19, actually exists and the ludicrous nature of the test, even if it did exist. The ending seems to have been missed off the segment, so for some reason I've added a short ending for that segment in this episode. So that went out and my book came out on the 25th of September, the pay-per-view book which I've mentioned many times before, pay-per-view in print, which is available now at the pay-per-view website, pay-per-view.uk. I also did a two and a half hour interview for the launch of the book, also available on the website. And I'm working on another video at the moment on the subject of viruses and looking at scientific papers claiming to have isolated SARS-CoV-2 in their studies and explaining it all simply and explaining why the virus has never been isolated and purified, which is the absolute foundation step to prove It exists. That will be uploaded on the website. There is also a blog post on the website describing the book in more detail. Now there is a missing segment from this episode which needs a lot of time and research and that's that's another reason why this episode has taken so long. I mean that segment the first segment of this episode which I uploaded separately I mentioned just now is an hour and five minutes on its own. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna upload that separately. It looks at the Israeli control of British politics in the same way that a segment in episode 62 looks at the Israeli control of American politics. And I'm going to relate it to current events because there is a massive web censorship network which is connected to the Labour Party and connected to Silicon Valley and all that is very relevant to current events. So that's what I've been doing, that's where I've been and I'm glad to be back with a new episode now and episodes are going to be far more frequent again now, so without any more waiting, let's get on with it, let's get on with it. Hello and welcome to episode 76 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the newspapers and big headlines over the week and place bets and headlines in their true context in the weekly podcast. It's good to be back. And the first subject this week is... Hello! Just a quick message, since I've been away for a while. The reason is quite simple, but it's not because I've quit pay-per-view. If I had, I would have let you know as soon as possible after I made the decision. It's not because I've been banned from Podomatic. Obviously, all the episodes are still available. I know a lot of people seem to make a point about being censored or banned from whatever platform. One or two do it to draw attention to a new platform they've created, which they want you to donate to. Others seem to do it because it's almost become fashionable in a way to claim you've been a sexual or banned. I don't see it as anything to gloat about. I just I just see it as something to address if it happens. Anyway, it's not. So it's not because I've got lazy. It's more important to share information, the like of which I have and do in pay per view now than ever. Not for any other reason than simply technical problems. That's it. I did say on social media, by the way if you want to follow me on social media I share a lot of information there as well. Twitter.com forward slash I am Daniel Ford. And I share updates on what's happening with pay-per-view as well. I did try a couple of solutions, get back to recording. None of them worked, but I'm back now, obviously, and pay-per-view is back. I've got a heck of an episode lined up as well. I'm talking about Israeli control and British politics in depth also. I did an episode on the subject in terms of American politics and Donald Trump in episode 62 ever heard of the 48 group i'm covering that in the next episode and how it relates to current events and looking at how covid19 is being used to remove culture and transform society in terms of culture socializing all that kind of thing so that's coming up very soon i'm already nearly halfway into recording it at the moment so stay tuned COVID-19 testing. This is in the Daily Mail. Test all pupils for coronavirus in school so they can return to classroom. Tony Blair's think tank urges Boris Johnson. All pupils should be tested for coronavirus at school to prove it's safe to return Tony Blair's think tank as, well as the Prime Minister. Well, anything Tony Blair suggests means we should do the opposite. Parents will be too scared of coronavirus to send their children to school in September unless stricter testing systems are put in place The Institute for Global Change found. Well, there's a lot of parents who were reluctant to send their kids to school because of the policies and measures that are in place. There is an urgent need to build confidence and avoid super-spreading events, the Telegraph reported. Boris Johnson has said parents will be forced by law to send their children back to school in September, even despite COVID-19. But there is fear among pupils, parents and teachers rooted in perceived health risks of the school setting the paper read. Nearly 400,000. That number again, 400,000 pupils and 30,000 teachers and support staff should be tested twice a week for the first three weeks after schools return, the IGC suggested. It said testing should be conducted at 1,054 nurseries, 679 primary schools and 136 secondary schools across the UK. This approach of focusing on potential super-spreading settings will catch outbreaks in their nascent stages, early stages, and ultimately help to prevent a second wave, says the paper. It comes after many schools around the world reopened following the pandemic. As of June 19th, some 123 countries still had school closures, according to data collected by UNESCO. Early evidence from mid-May, after 17 countries returned early, primary and final years in secondary showed no large increase in infections. No, because children's risk of contracting and passing on the virus is basically zero, even if you believe it exists, and I don't, as I've detailed over the past several months. It has been widely touted that children do not experience severe symptoms when infected with the disease, or any really. Meanwhile, campaigners have urged ministers to send pupils, although to be fair, children wearing masks will increase the number of children allegedly infected with COVID-19 because of the respiratory consequences. Meanwhile, campaigners have urged Ministers to send pupils back to school a fortnight early in the autumn to reduce the damage to their education. The idea is part of a five-point plan proposed by the Influential Education Policy Group, Parents and Teachers for Excellence, to get children back into the habit of learning what the state wants them to believe, which is what schools are teaching kids. PTE co-founder Dame Rochelle D'Souza, who is chief executive of the Inspiration Trust of 14 academies across East Anglia, said schools provide a vital structure in young people's lives and without to be risk allowing them to drift aimlessly and damaging their futures irreparably. Now, kids have not been to school because of, allegedly because of the virus, but what the state does not want is kids potentially learning in their own way and not being told to believe what the state wants them to believe so they want kids back in school for that reason. She claimed that online learning had failed to bridge that gap with students losing motivation and spending their time watching Netflix or playing video games. It comes after Gavin Williamson vowed to end the softly softly approach for dealing with teaching unions and get all children back in school by September. The education secretary said he plans for all children to go back to school at the start of the next school year come what may. It was said Mr Williamson got the knuckle-dusters out while addressing the backbench Tory MPs in a meeting this week, the Telegraph reported. He called the National Education Union the no-education union, agree with that, and said that William Wrag, the Conservative MP for Hazel Grove, is their only sane member, a source said. Mr Williamson had previously come under criticism for his handling of reopening schools amid the pandemic. He argued on plans for primary school children to return to school before summer, but later changed his mind, saying this would be encouraged. Robert Halfon, a senior Tory MP and chairman of the Education Select Committee, said the risks of children not learning beyond September are enormous. We cannot delay any longer. This comes soon after Education Union set up a fresh clash with politicians and parents over Boris Johnson's plan for full school attendance of September, branding it pure fantasy. Prime Minister told MPs this afternoon that school education will restart fully at the start of the autumn term under one metre plus social distancing rules. The measures introduced allow people to sit less than two metres apart as long as they use some other mitigation measures such as masks or plastic screens or hand sanitizer, which is toxic and even some sanitizers say when you look at the back where it has all the ingredients in it it says how toxic they are and kids are using this hand sanitiser multiple times a week and some of these hand sanitizers a lot of them are alcohol based which is poison depending on the concentration and the amount of it so people are potentially killing their own microbes if they use it a lot they will be the government faced widespread criticism after shelving plans to get all children back this term before summer after finding there was not enough room in classrooms under the previous two meter social distancing regime classes were limited to just 15 pupils and union leaders cast doubt on whether the changes would make enough difference. Jeff Barton, General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders, said there has been a lot of conjecture that relaxing the two-metre social distancing rule to one metre would allow more children to return to school in September. This is pure fantasy. It may be possible to accommodate more pupils in classrooms with a one-metre plus separation, but not all pupils. There is just not enough space in many classrooms to do this. It is not a magic bullet, and nor is the Education Secretary's suggestion it is not a magic bullet, and nor is the Education Secretary's suggestion of doubling the size of social bubbles to 30 in order to facilitate a full return to schools. He added, We need a proper strategy to bring children back into schools and colleges based on reality and on public health guidance. Approximately 78% of education settings that normally have children in nursery reception year 1 or year 6 were open to at least one of these year groups on June the 18th. This is up from June the 11th when over 2 in 3, 67% primary schools opened more widely to pupils. Around 92% of settings were open in some capacity on June 18th, the same as the previous week according to the Department for Education Statistics. Approximately 1,160,000 children attended an education setting on June 18th, representing 12.2% of pupils who normally attend up from 9.1% on June 11th. Dr. Mary Bustad, Joint General Secretary of the NEU, said the NEU is of course in favour of all children being back in school, but even with a one-metre rule, that will need more teachers and more spaces. It is not clear whether in less than three months the science will permit classes of 30. If social distancing of one-metre remains in place, that will still be difficult for schools. Well, it depends what science you're looking at, as I'll explain. The Prime Minister told the Commons, primary and secondary education will recommence in September with full attendance and those children who can already go to school should do so because it is safe. His plea came as figures show the number of pupils returning to school In England, increased as more than three and four primary schools reopened their doors to more children. Schools, colleges and nurseries closed more than 13 weeks ago due to the COVID-19 outbreak remaining open only for vulnerable youngsters and the children of key workers. Education Secretary Gavin Williams says that class size limits could be expanded to allow every child to return to school. Under government guidance, primary school class sizes should be limited to 15 to minimise the number of people they come into contact with. But Mr Williamson told the Daily Downing Street Briefing that these so-called bubbles could be expanded to include the whole class. And the most amazing thing about this test that's producing all the cases, allegedly, is that it's not testing for the virus. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. The swabs that are used to test are collecting DNA, and that DNA is being collected in a database. And I've talked about the real reason for DNA databases in episode 11. And all these websites, like 23andMe and Ancestry, the relation between them and the real reason for DNA databases. Children now are told to stand or sit in small, marked-out areas and to wear masks and use hand sanitizer, which are toxic just look at the back of the bottles and some of these hand sanitizers a lot of them are alcohol based which is poison depending on the concentration and the amount of it so people are potentially killing their own microbes in fact, if they use it a lot they will be when they're picked up parents have to wait for their children to be released to them by teachers and you know subjecting children all this nonsense is child abuse in my opinion and parents especially parents who can see it's nonsense need to summon the courage not to subject their kids to these measures. And if that means keeping them home, then keep them home. They'll be much better off anyway. They'll be able to learn in their own way and not be told to believe what the state wants them to believe. And I've said before that when you come into the world, you tend to accept that how things are is just the way life is. People older have experienced a different world and a different life, especially in the case of the last several months. So we know, people older know that this is not the way life is or should be. Kids don't know that. Unless someone points it out, they're not going to know. So they are getting used to the new normal far more powerfully than adults are, or those that accept it anyway. And I've talked before about something called brain plasticity, where the brain changes in line with experience, and kids' brains are being rewired to the new normal. And the British Cabinet Office has an organisation or private company called the Behavioural Insights Team. And they are involved with responding to COVID-19. That's the way they word it. And we are looking on one level over the last several months, and especially as every week goes by, at a PSYOP. In fact, episode 73 is called PSYOP. Episode 73 of Pay-Per-View called PSYOP. Because because this is a psychological operation that we've seen over the last several months. And it's targeting the kids more than anyone. Because if they can be psychologically rewired now, then by the time they're adults, this will be normal to them. See, the new normal is not meant to be a temporary thing. It's meant to be literally the new normal. More for kids than anyone else. And parents have to ask themselves, are they going to just accept that for their kids or are they going to... Take the time for once, for a lot of people, it will be for once, to actually do a bit of research and not just accept what they're told by the media and government. The same thing in terms of what they're saying. Like I said, I've been tracking this alleged pandemic over the last several months. And if I can research it, then anyone can. So it's a choice and it's one that needs to be made fast for kids more than anyone else. I found this article on off guard. You have done some brilliant work over the course of the past several months on the pandemic. It's called. COVID-19 PCR tests are scientifically meaningless. Lockdowns and hygienic measures around the world are based on numbers of cases and mortality rates created by the so-called SARS-CoV-2 RT-PCR tests used to identify positive patients while positive is usually a Equated with infected, but looking closely at the facts, the conclusion is that these PCR tests are meaningless as a diagnostic tool to determine an alleged infection by a supposedly new virus called SARS-CoV-2. At the media briefing on COVID-19 on March 16, 2020, the World Health Organization Director-General Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said, "We have a simple message for all countries: test, test, test." The message was spread through headlines around the world. For instance, by Reuters and the BBC. Still, on the 3rd of May, the moderator of the Hoyt Journal, one of the most important news magazines on German television, was passing the mantra of the corona dogma on to his audience with the admonishing words, Test, 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 that is the cradle at the moment, and it is the only way to really understand how much the coronavirus is spreading. This indicates that the belief in the validity of the PCR test is so strong that it equals a religion that tolerates virtually no contradiction. But it is well known that religions are about faith and not about scientific facts. And as Walter Lippmann, the two-time Pulitzer Prize winner and perhaps the most influential journalist of the 20th century, said, Where all think alike, no one thinks very much. My goodness me, does that relate to the past few months or what? The article continues. So to start, it is very remarkable that Kerry Mullis himself, the inventor of the polymerase chain reaction technology, did not think alike. His invention got him the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1993. Unfortunately, Mullis passed away last year at the age of 74, but there is no doubt that the biochemist regarded the PCR as inappropriate to detect a viral infection. It's being used to detect a viral infection. The reason is that the intended use of the PCR was, and still is, to apply it as a manufacturing technique, not a test. It's not a test. That's why you get such ridiculous results from it, in many cases. Being able to replicate DNA sequences millions and billions of times and not as a diagnostic tool to detect viruses. How declaring virus pandemics based on PCR tests can end in disaster was described by Gina Collata in a 2007 New York Times article, Faith in Quick tests leads to Epidemic that Wasn't. I'll read that in a minute. Moreover, it is worth mentioning the PCR tests used to identify so-called COVID-19 patients, presumably infected by what is called SARS-CoV-2, which is actually the name of the virus. COVID-19 is what? SARS-CoV-2 is said to cause, do not have a valid gold standard to compare them with. This is a fundamental point. Tests need to be evaluated to determine their preciseness. Strictly speaking, their sensitivity and specificity by comparison with the gold standard, meaning the most accurate method available. As an example, for a pregnancy test, the gold standard would be the pregnancy itself. But as Australian infectious disease specialist Sanjaya Senator Nayaki, for example, stated in an ABC TV interview in answer to the question, how accurate is COVID-19 testing? If we had a new test for picking up the bacterium golden staph in blood, or staphylococcus, give it its full name, we've already got blood cultures, that's our gold standard we've been using for decades, and we could match this new test against that. But for COVID-19, we don't have a gold standard test. Jessica C. Watson from Bristol University confirms this. In her paper, Interpreting a COVID-19 Test Result, published recently in the British Medical Journal, she writes that there is a lack of such a clear-cut gold standard for COVID-19 testing. What all this means is, there is no test for COVID-19. There's what they're calling tests, but that's very different from an actual test that picks up. What they're saying picks up. As I'm going to explain, the article continues. But instead of classifying the test as unsuitable for SARS-CoV-2 detection and COVID-19 diagnosis, or instead of pointing out that only a virus proven through isolation and purification on, get back to that in a minute, can be a solid gold standard. Watson claims in all seriousness that pragmatically COVID-19 diagnosis itself, remarkably including PCR testing itself, may be the best available gold standard but that is not scientifically sound so the best available gold standard is not a gold standard the article continues Apart from the fact that it is downright absurd to take the PCR test itself as part of the gold standard to evaluate the PCR test, there are no distinct or specific symptoms for COVID-19, as even people such as Thomas Loscher, former head of the Department of Infection and Tropical Medicine in the University of Munich, and member of the Federal Association of German Internists, conceded to us. So that's an important point there. There's nothing to compare this test with. As useless as it is, there's no other test to say, okay, this test is rubbish because when you compare it against this test, then you can see that it doesn't live up to that standard. There is no gold standard to compare the test to. And the test itself is useless. The article continues, and if there are no distinctive specific symptoms for COVID-19, COVID-19 diagnosis, contrary to Watson's statement, cannot be suitable for serving as a valid gold standard. In addition, experts such as Watson overlook the fact that only virus isolation, i.e. an unequivocal virus proof, can be the gold standard. That is why I asked Watson how COVID-19 diagnosis may be the best available gold standard. If there are no distinctive specific symptoms for COVID-19, there's not. There's symptoms of many other illnesses, and they keep adding to them all the time, so they can encompass more people. And also, whether the virus itself, that is virus isolation, would not be the best available possible gold standard. But she has not answered those questions yet, despite multiple requests. And she has not yet responded to our rapid response post on her article in which we address exactly the same points either. either, Though she wrote us on June the 2nd, I will try to post her reply later this week when I have a chance. Well, she never did. Now the question is, what is required first for virus isolation proof? We need to know where the RNA for which the PCR tests are calibrated came comes from. I'll get to that in a minute. As textbooks, e.g. white, Fenner Medical Virology 1986 page 9 as well as leading virus researchers such as Lute Montagna or Dominic Dwyer state particle purification i.e. the separation of an object from everything else that is not that object as for instance Nobel laureate Marie Curie purified 100 milligrams of radium chloride in 1898 by extracting it from tons of pitchblende is an essential prerequisite for proving the existence of a virus, and thus to prove that the RNA within the viral particle in question comes from a new virus. The reason for this is that the PCR is extremely sensitive, which means it can detect even the smallest pieces of DNA or RNA, but it cannot determine where those particles came from. That has to be determined beforehand, and that's where the isolation and purification comes in. The test will test for what it's calibrated to test for. In other words, the template that it's given. So it has what is known as a primer. And that's a preset template of alleged viral material in this case. And the test will test for that. It will detect that within the mass of material in the body. But it has to be determined beforehand that that material is viral. If it's not, then the test is not going to tell you that. The article continues, and because the PCR tests are calibrated for gene sequences, in this case RNA sequences, because SARS-CoV-2 is believed to be an RNA virus, we have to know that these gene snippets are part of the looked-for virus, and to know that correct isolation and purification of the presumed virus has to be executed. It never has been. Hence, we have asked the science teams of the relevant scientific papers, which are referred to in the context of SARS-CoV-2, for proof whether the electron microscopic shots depicted in their experiments show purified virus, we asked several study authors, do your electron micrographs share the purified virus? They gave the following responses. Study 1. Emergence of a novel human coronavirus threatening human health. March 2020. Answer. The image is the virus budding from an infected cell. It is not purified virus. Well, if it's not purified virus, how can they say the virus is what they see budding from an infected cell? Study 2. Identification of coronavirus isolated from a patient in Korea with COVID-19, February 2020. Answer. We could not estimate the degree of purification because we do not purify and concentrate the virus cultured in cells. Now, this study has been cited as a reference in itself as evidence that the virus has been identified because in the paper it says the virus has been identified and it gives a reference or it did at one point reference number 7 which was nothing to do with identifying a virus at all it was looking at the genetic similarities between what's alleged to be the virus and bats and even then they said that the genetic similarity was not compelling enough but this paper cited all the time study 3 virus isolation from the first patient with SARS-CoV-2 in Korea February 24th. Answer. We did not obtain an electron micrograph showing the degree of purification. Study 4. A novel coronavirus from patients with pneumonia in China. February 20th. We show an image of sedimented virus particles, not purified ones. Again, how do they know they're viral particles without isolation and purification? So these are the four main papers published claiming to isolate a virus. And you'll see the words isolated or isolation, but you don't always see the word purification when you look at these studies. And I've looked at many of them. And of course, I wanted to check that those were genuine plies. And I contacted one of the authors of the article, Torsten Engelbrecht, and he confirmed it. And and he sent me two other questions in kind of the form of statements, really. The first one is, to compare the DNA of the alleged father and the child, one must ensure that the DNAs originate from the bodies of the alleged father and child. This entails forensic precautions to identify two separate individuals prior to obtaining their blood or other tissue samples for analysis. The same standard applies to the identification of virus particle RNA and proteins. When cells, cellular debris and particles are mixed in a culture, the only way of determining which RNA and proteins are viral is by separation of the particles from or the non-viral material. In a paternity suit, the genome can be obtained from a single particle, the father or child. However, since the viral genome cannot be procured from a single particle, one must obtain it from a large mass of identical, that is, purified particles, or at least material that does not contain extraneous RNA. This is an extremely simple concept readily understood even by the layman. In both your paper and email, this is addressed to Authors, study authors. You acknowledge that you did not use the traditional methods to prove the existence of the viral genome. That is, cell culture, particle detection confirmed by electron microscopy, particle purification confirmed by electron microscopy, proof of replication and particle analysis for nucleic acid and proteins. Nucleic acid is basically DNA. How then can you claim the RNA is the genome of a novel virus? And that fragments of this RNA can be used for the detection of an infection with the so-called new virus named SARS-CoV-2. And, of course, the answer is you can't. You don't correctly purify and isolate the material. I'm going to make a video soon where I talk about this in more detail. But basically, you take body samples, which can contain a whole range of material within the body. And you don't isolate any viral material out of that mess and mass you just pick out certain RNA sequences and you claim in this case that what you picked out of that mass of material has 80% similarity to the SARS virus now two things there although that sounds very compelling as a statement on its own not so much when you realize that SARS was identified or not identified in the same way as as SARS-CoV-2 And that can be proven. And that humans have 96% genetic similarity to chimpanzees. We're obviously not chimpanzees. So something with 16% less genetic relation or similarity is hardly compelling. And one of the things they'll do in virologic study is they will take RNA sequences and they'll compare them against a database of viral material. But it's viral more viral genetic sequences but it's viral genetic sequences that have been identified in the same way what they also do is they will what they call culturing they will take what they believe is the virus whatever virus they're studying and they will culture it in host cells in other words cells from a living host quite often it will be vero cells or vero rhesus kidney cells which are monkey cells basically and they will culture it in like a petri dish or, or some kind of container. And they will, instead of just leaving the, what they claim is the viral material with the cells going away and then coming back and observing the cytopathic effects, in other words, what the effects of the virus are on the cells... They will mix the culture with a load of different stuff, or they will include in the culture a load of different stuff, a load of different material from different sources, one of which is antibiotics, which are known to be toxic to cells. So when they have the cells mixed with antibiotics, with all this other material, and what they claim is the virus, they'll come back and look at the cytopathic effects and say, see, the." Cells are poisoned and it's done this to the cells. Therefore, this virus material has caused this to the cells. Therefore, we know it's a dangerous virus, an infectious virus, and we know this is what it does to the body. But they've mixed it with a lot of other material. And I've talked about something called exosomes before in episode 70, I believe. And they are basically what the body releases as a response of the immune system to poison or toxified cells or cells in trouble, basically. And they can resemble what is claimed to be COVID-19 very, very closely. I mean, identical, basically. Not just physically, but in terms of the attributes. They both contain genetic material, RNA. They both can be 500 nanometers inside the cell in the case of COVID-19. And exosomes, they are... Housed in what are called multivesicles, which are basically the best analogy I've heard is if you look at an Easter egg and you have like little cream eggs inside the Easter egg. That's basically the multivesicle is the Easter egg and the exosomes are cream eggs. 500 nanometers and the exosomes are 100 nanometers, which is what is claimed for COVID 19. They both lock into the same receptors on the cells, the angiotensin converting enzyme 2 receptors or ACE2. And they can both be found in lung fluid. And if you culture what you believe to be the virus with cells mixed with a range of material, including antibiotics, then that poison nature of antibiotics to the cells is going to cause the release of exosomes. So you will observe exosomes. And it's not guaranteed that what you're observing is viral material, but it is guaranteed that you'll observe exosomes because the use of antibiotics will generate the release of exosomes. There is so much reason to doubt virologic study, and possibly the most historic example of that is SARS-CoV-2. If ever there was a case study for viral fraudulent identification of viral material then it's SARS-CoV-2. Now that doesn't mean that every scientific team who have published a study claiming to isolate the virus are doing it fraudulently. They will just have learned a certain way to identify viral material and they will carry out their studies in that way. They'll think they've isolated the virus but the overall claim the virus has been isolated and purified and this genetic material is what we're claiming is the virus. That is fraudulent in the case of SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19. The article continues. The article continues. Regarding the mentioned papers, it is clear that what is shown in the electron micrographs is the end result of the experiment, meaning there is no other result that they could have made EMs from. That is to say, if the authors of these studies concede that their published EMs do not show purified particles, then they definitely do not possess purified particles claimed to be viral. In this context, it has to be remarked that some researchers use the term isolation in their papers, but the procedures described therein do not represent a proper isolation and therefore purification process. Consequently, in this context, the term isolation is misused. Thus, the authors of four of the principal early 2020 papers... Claiming discovery of a new coronavirus can see they had no proof that the origin of the virus genome is viral like particles or cellular debris, pure or impure, or particles of any kind. In other words, the existence of SARS-CoV-2 RNA is based on faith, not fact. Now, I have heard it said that the nature of viruses means that they cannot actually be isolated and purified, because once they're out of the body, they need a living host to survive, and so you can't grow them in a pure culture And you can with bacteria, because they are alive. To an extent, that's true. But what's missed is the fact that viruses are grown in host cells. Now, they could be human cells, but they're not. They're not human host sample cells. They're monkey cells called Vero cells. And the virus can then exist and replicate and do whatever it will do. So they can be isolated and purified. They can. They're just not grown in a pure culture. They have to be in a host cell. So the idea, therefore, that they can exist on work surfaces or door handles or whatever is pathetic. It's ludicrous because they need a living host to survive a host cell. Once once there is no host cell for them to survive in, it's game over because they're not alive. They're either active or inactive. But the fact remains, as these authors admit, and these are the four main papers, although, like I say, there are other ones, there is no SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19 virus, as I've been saying for months now. They've never isolated it, they've never purified it, and they've never shown that it causes an infectious disease. Never. How can they show that it causes an infectious disease if they can't even find it in the first place? As this article brilliantly puts it, In other words, the existence of SARS-CoV-2 RNA is based on faith, not fact. The thing is, you see, this is something I realised a while back, but it's extremely relevant to today. All people need as evidence is the establishment, the media, experts, in the case of a medical situation, doctors, etc., medical experts, medical professionals, all over the world or all over the country, talking about a virus to accept that it exists. When I've said to people, this virus has never been proven to exist, never been isolated and purified, and it doesn't pass the criteria for isolation, purification, and proof that it actually causes an infectious disease, it, it seems to not matter to them. It's like, it's, it's irrelevant. The, all these people are talking about it, so it must be true. It's like a load of people in a building shouting fire. Everyone starts running, but none of them actually find the fire, and no, that nobody ascertains the the nature of the fire, how it's claimed to have started, whether it could have started in that way, the physical circumstances that are claimed to have happened, could it have happened like that? Where the fire is, part of the building it's in, or where it might have started. Nobody ever sees the investigation into the fire and looks at how it was carried out. Everyone just reacts to someone shouting fire. That is very, very close analogy to exactly what has happened with this virus hoax. No one's found the virus, but everyone's talking about it. All these experts and the medical establishment and the World Health Organization, as corrupt as that is. I talk about that in episode 72, how corrupt the World Health Organization is. And a few salient facts, shall we say, about Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College London in relation to the World Health Organization. He was the guy who caused the lockdown in Britain with his ludicrous computer models. All these people are talking about it, so there must be a virus that's how they pulled off this hoax. People just take it as read that they, they don't even think. I've not come across one person, apart from those who are researching it, like authors of this article and, and others, and doctors who have come out and said the scientific evidence for the virus basically doesn't exist. People in the general public, I've not, I've not talked to one who even thought about that, because it's just taken as read that it would have been done. It's taken as read that all the scientific side of it oh yeah they'd have done that that's how they know there's a virus no they've not not once not anywhere in the world and it's kind of interesting that the, the parts of the story that people are most focused on are the parts that they see on the news the figures you talk to people they're not interested in the scientific part of it because they think that would already have been done anyway It's not. What they'll focus on most and what they'll try to challenge you with if you say there's no evidence for the virus existing is parts of the official narrative that they've seen on the news, which are the figures and the excess deaths and all that. I've talked about the figures in episode 69 and episode 74. It's kind of interesting. When doctors come out through the internet and alternative means, people are not interested in what they have to say, and people even question whether they're real doctors. Or what do they really know what they're talking about? Those same doctors, the news, the mainstream media, and said the exact same things. People would take notice of it. So if they're an alternative outlet, an alternative platform, people would just dismiss what they say and probably don't need to bother listening anyway. And if they were any good, they'd be on the news. But it's not when they're any good or not. It's whether what they're saying will demolish the official story or not. But if they were on the TV news, people would just accept what they're saying without question. So alternative sources reject without question, television news accept without question. That's the way people see scientists and doctors and what they're saying. And it became clear to me that it's not even the information that dictates what people think. It's whether it's on the TV news or not. The article continues we have also contacted dr charles kalisher who is a seasoned virologist in 2001 science published an impassioned plea to the younger generation from several veteran virologists among them kalisher saying that modern virus detection methods like sleek polymerase chain reaction pcr test tell little or nothing about how a virus multiplies which animals carry it or how it makes people sick it is like trying to say whether somebody's had bad breath by looking at its fingerprint. And that's why we asked Dr. Kalisher whether he knows one single paper in which SARS-CoV-2 has been isolated and finally really purified. His answer, I know of no such publication. I have kept an eye out for one. This actually means, the article continues, that one cannot conclude that the RNA gene sequences which the scientists took from the tissue samples prepared in the mentioned in vitro- Trials in vitro means a study before in microorganisms, cells, biological molecules, viruses. This actually means that one cannot conclude that the RNA gene sequences, which the scientists took from the tissue samples prepared in the mentioned in vitro trials, and from which the PCR tests are finally being calibrated, belong to a specific virus, in this case SARS-CoV-2. In addition, there is no scientific proof that those RNA sequences are the causative agent of what is called COVID-19 meaning there's no scientific proof for the existence of SARS-CoV-2. In order to establish a causal connection, the article says, one way or the other, i.e. beyond virus isolation and purification, it would have been absolutely necessary to carry out an experiment that satisfies the four Koch's postulates. These are criteria for proving that a microorganism causes disease. And they are one- The microorganism must be found in abundance in all organisms suffering from the disease but should not be found in healthy organisms. Two, the microorganism must be isolated from a diseased organism and grown in pure culture or host cells if it's a virus. A cultured microorganism should cause disease when introduced into a healthy organism. The microorganism must be re-isolated from the inoculated diseased experimental host and identified as being identical to the original specific causative agent. In other words, you take sample of material, you isolate and purify a virus from it, you introduce it into a living host, they must get what you say it's causing, and then you take another sample, isolate and purify the virus from that, and then introduce that into another living host, and they must get what you say it's causing. And then you can say, okay, we proved one is causing the other. And I am aware that there are updated Koch's postulates and there's another set of criteria called Rivers criteria and there's some debate about whether Koch's postulates in their original form have much validity given what's been learned about viruses or what's claimed to be learned about viruses and microorganisms and illness in the years since because these were these go back to 1890 the Koch's postulates but in a way Certainly, in the case of COVID 19, SARS CoV 2, and SARS 1, it doesn't really matter what the criteria are or are not. Without isolating and purifying the microorganism, the virus, it's kind of irrelevant what the other criteria are. Anyway, the article continues. But there is no such experiment satisfying the Koch's postulates, as Amory Devereux and Rosemary Frey recently revealed for Off Guardian. The necessity to fulfil these postulates regarding SARS-CoV-2 is demonstrated not least by the fact that attempts have been made to fulfil them, but even researchers claiming they have done it in reality did not succeed. Interestingly, none of the leading German representatives of the official theory about SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19, the Robert Koch Institute, could answer the following question I have sent them, which is, if the particles that are claimed to be SARS-CoV-2 have not been purified, how do you Want to be sure that the RNA gene sequences of these particles belong to a specific new virus, is basically what I've said. It continues, particularly if there are studies showing that substances such as antibiotics that are added to the test tubes in the in vitro experiments carried out for virus detection can stress the cell culture in a way that new gene sequences are being formed that were not previously detectable. An aspect the Nobel laureate Barbara McClintock already drew attention to in a Nobel lecture back in 1983. It should not go and mention, the article continues, that we finally got the charité, the employer of Christian Drosten, Germany's most influential virologist in respect of COVID nineteen, advisor to the German government and co developer of the PCR test, which was the first to be accepted, not validated by the WHO worldwide to answer questions on the topic. But we did not get answers until after months of non response. In the end, we achieved it only with the help of Berlin lawyer Viviane Fisher. Regarding our question, has the Charité convinced itself that appropriate particle purification was carried out? The Charité concedes that they did not use purified particles. This is the organisation of Christian Drosten, who developed the PCR test for COVID-19. And they're saying they didn't use purified particles. And although they claim virologists at the Charité are sure that they are testing for the virus, <laughs> in their paper, Detection of 2019 Novel Coronavirus by Real-Time RT-PCR, they state, RNA was extracted from clinical samples with the Magna Pure 96 system and from cell culture supernatants with the viral RNA Kit. which means they just assumed the RNA was viral. They technology to extract RNA. What was that RNA. They didn't isolate and purify viral particles and extract genetic material from within the virus, which is what actually does the damage and sequence that genetic material. So how do they know it's viral? And even if they sequence it, they're comparing it against that database I mentioned earlier, which is full of records of alleged viral genetic sequences, which are kind of, according to one doctor, basically like a Frankenstein mix of partly computer-generated sequences and partly bits of this and that other virus. So even if they did isolate and purify an extraction material, what are they comparing the material with? The article continues. Incidentally, the Cuomo paper published on January 23rd, 2020 did not even go through a proper peer review process, nor were the procedures outlined therein accompanied by controls, although it is only through these two things that scientific work becomes really solid. They don't have control experiments in these studies. Here's a really simple example of a controlled experiment that I found. Suppose I decide to grow bean sprouts in my kitchen near the window. I put bean seeds in a pot with soil, set them on the windowsill and wait for them to sprout. However, after several weeks, I have no sprouts. Why not? Well, it turns out I forgot to water the seeds. So I hypothesized that they did not sprout due to lack of water. To test my hypothesis, I do a controlled experiment. In the experiment, I set up two identical pots. Both contain 10 bean seeds planted in the same type of soil, and both are placed in the same window. In fact, there is only one thing that I do differently to the two pots. One pot of seeds gets watered every afternoon. The other pot of seeds does not get any water at all. After a week, 9 out of 10 seeds in the watered pot sprouted, while none of the seeds in the dry pot have sprouted. It looks like the seeds need water hypothesis is probably correct. But they don't do any kind of control experiments in virological study. I mean, like I said, there's so much to doubt about viruses and what we're told, and especially and historically in the case of COVID-19. In fact, COVID-19 has brought to light some of these failings of virologic study. Here's an example of a controlled experiment. I didn't know this was actually in the article, but perfect, what I've just said. The article, this is the off-guardian article. Again, it is also certain that we cannot know the false positive rate of the PCR tests without widespread testing of people who certainly do not have the virus, proven by a method which is independent of the test. A gold standard, but there isn't one for COVID-19. So you can test the results With a controlled experiment. Therefore, the article says it is hardly surprising that there are several papers illustrating irrational test results. For example, in February, the health authority in China's Guangdong province reported that people have fully recovered from illness blamed on COVID 19, SARS CoV 2, started to test negative and then tested positive again. And I featured a story in episode 75, the last episode, about samples from a goat and a fruit. The inside of a fruit, a pawpaw or a papaya, testing positive, And a jackfruit testing positive. Because the test is useless. If not isolated and purified the virus and extracted the genetic material, thus you can't test for it. Thus you cannot create a vaccine for it. A month later, the article continues, a paper published in the Journal of Medical Virology showed that 29 out of 610 patients in a hospital in Wuhan had three to six test results that flipped between negative, positive and dubious. I mean, it would be hilarious if it was not real and the impact of it on society. A third example is a study from Singapore in which tests were carried out almost daily on 18 patients and the majority went from positive to negative back to positive at least once and up to five times in one patient. Even Wang Chen, president of the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences, conceded in February that the PCR tests are only 30-50% to 50% accurate. I would say 100% inaccurate, for reasons I've said. While Sin Hang Li from the Milford Molecular Diagnostics laboratory sent a letter to the Hughes Coronavirus Response Team and to Anthony Fauci, this criminal advising Trump as part of the Coronavirus Task Force of Trump administration, on March 22, 2020, said that it has been widely reported in social media that the PCR tests used to detect SARS-CoV-2 RNA in human specimens are generating many false positive results and are not sensitive enough to t- detect some real positive cases. In other words, even if we theoretically assume that these PCR tests can really detect a viral infection, the test, this is the article again, the test will be practically worthless and it would only cause an unfounded scare among the positive people tested, which is exactly what's happened. The CDC and FDA, for instance, concede in their files that the so-called SARS-CoV-2 RT-PCR tests are not suitable for SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis. In the CDC 2019 novel coronavirus real-time RT-PCR diagnostic panel file from March 30th, 2020, for example, it says, Detection of viral RNA may not indicate the presence of infectious virus or the 2019 m sars SARS-CoV-2, is the causative agent for clinical symptoms. And it says, this test cannot rule out diseases caused by other bacterial or viral pathogens. And the FDA admits that positive results do not rule out bacterial infection or co-infection with other viruses. The agent detected may not be the definite cause of disease. Because the test will only detect what it's been calibrated to detect, as I said earlier. Remarkably, in the instruction manuals of PCR tests, we can also read that they are not intended as a diagnostic test, as, for instance, in those by Altona Diagnostics and Creative Diagnostics. To quote another one, in the product announcement of the light mix modular assays produced by TIB Mobion, which were developed using the Corman et al. protocol and distributed by Roch, Roch is a pharmaceutical company, we can read, these assays are not intended for use as an aid in the diagnosis of coronavirus infection and for research use only not for use in diagnostic procedures. They're using it for diagnostic procedures. Moreover, in the product descriptions of the RT-PCR test for SARS-CoV-2, it says that they are qualitative tests contrary to the fact that the QAV QPCR stands for quantitative, and if these tests are not quantitative tests, they don't show how many viral particles are in the body. This is known as a viral load. That is crucial because in order to even begin talking about actual illness in the real world, not only in a laboratory, the patient would need to have millions and millions of viral particles actively replicating in their body. That is to say, the CDC, the WHO, the FDA, or the RKI may assert that the test can measure the so-called viral load, i.e. how many viral particles are in the body. But this has never been proven. That is an enormous scandal, as the journalist John Rappaport points out, who's been studying health and medical subjects for many years. Also, to prove beyond any doubt that the PCR can measure how much a person is burdened with the disease-causing virus, the following experiment would have had to be carried out, which has not yet happened. You take, let's say, a few hundred or even thousand people and remove tissue samples from them. Make sure the people who take the samples do not perform the test. The testers will never know who the patients are and what condition they're in. The testers run the PCR on the tissue samples In each case, they say which virus they found and how much of it they found. Then, for example, in patients 2986, 199, 272, and 293, they found a great deal of what they claim is a virus. Now we unblind those patients. They should all be sick because they have so much virus replicating in their bodies. But are they really sick or are they fit as a fiddle? Mm The article continues, With the help of the aforementioned lawyer, Vivian Fisher, I finally got the charity to also answer the question of whether the test, developed by Corman et al., the so-called Drosten PCR test, is a quantitative test. But the charity was not willing to answer this question. Instead, they wrote, If real-time RT-PCR is involved, to the knowledge of the charity, in most cases these are limited to qualitative detection. Just another point on quantitative-qualitative. If the virus is replicating in the body to a very significant extent which it needs to be to cause a problem it's not just having the virus it's actually the viral load that counts then why do you need a pcr test to amplify the material because if it's so prevalent in the body in the tissue samples you should be able to detect it anyway why do you need to amplify it to look at it more clearly and the more cycles of amplification you do in other words, the more you zoom in to the material, the more genetic material and other material is being picked up by the test. Furthermore, the article continues, the Drosten PCR test, and we've all got all kinds of material inside us, whether it's bacterial, genetic, cellular debris from cells that have been killed, which the test can pick up. People will say, but the test is testing for the virus, well, i have explain why it's not, but... Even if the say does, only if you isolate and purify the virus in the first place. If you don't do that, there's no telling what the test is picking up. We don't know what the test is picking up because it's never been identified. The article continues. Another essential problem is that many PCR tests have a cycle quantification value of over thirty five. This is the cycles of amplification. And some, including the troston PCR test, even have a CQ of 45. The CQ value specifies how many cycles of DNA replication are required to detect a real signal from biological samples. 45 is way too high, according to a doctor that I was looking at talking about this. CQ values higher than 40 are suspect. Oh, there we go. Exactly what I just said because of the implied low efficiency and generally should not be reported as it says in the MIQE guidelines. MIQE stands for Minimum Information for Publication of Quantitative Real-Time PCR Experiments, a set of guidelines that describe the minimum information necessary for evaluating publications on real-time PCR, also called quantitative PCR or qPCR. The inventor himself, Kerry Mullis, agreed when he stated, If you have to go more than 40 cycles to amplify a single copy gene, there is something seriously wrong with your PCR. Kerry Mullis actually won the Nobel Prize for the test. He invented it originally, and he said this should not be used to diagnose infectious disease. The MIQE guidelines have been developed under the ages of Stephen A. Bustin, professor of molecular medicine, a world-renowned expert on quantitative PCR and author of the book A to Z of Quantitative PCR, which has been called the Bible of QPCR. In a recent podcast interview, Bustin points out that the use of such arbitrary CQ cutoffs is not ideal because they may be either too low, eliminating valid results, or too high, increasing false positive results. And according to him, a CQ in the 20s to 30s should be aimed at, and there is concern regarding the reliability of results much over that value. And for a real world example of just how useless this PCR test is, this is from the New York Times in January 2007. This was mentioned in the first Off Guardian article. Faith in quick test leads to epidemic that wasn't. Dr. Brooke Herndon, an internist at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Centre, could not stop coughing. For two weeks, starting in mid-April last year, she coughed seemingly non-stop, followed by another week when she coughed sporadically, annoying, she said, everyone who worked with her should be called COVID-19 now. Before long, Dr Catherine Kirkland, an infectious disease specialist at Dartmouth, had a chilling thought. Could she be seeing the start of a whooping cough epidemic? By late April, other healthcare workers at the hospital were coughing and severe intractable coughing is a whooping cough hallmark. And if it was whooping cough, the epidemic had to be contained immediately because the disease could be deadly to babies in the hospital and could lead to pneumonia in the frown of vulnerable adult patients there. It was the start of a bizarre episode of the medical centre. The story of the epidemic that wasn't. For months, nearly everyone involved thought the medical centers had a huge whooping cough outbreak with extensive ramifications. Nearly 1,000 healthcare workers at the hospital in Lebanon, NH, were given a preliminary test and furloughed from work until their results were. 142 people, including Dr. Herndon, 142 people, including Dr. Herndon, were told they appeared to have the disease, and thousands were given antibiotics and a vaccine for protection. Hospital beds were taken out of commission, including some in intensive care. Then, about eight months later, healthcare workers were dumbfounded to receive an email message from the hospital administration informing them that the whole thing was a false alarm. Not a single case of whooping cough was confirmed with the definitive test, growing the bacterium, Bordetella a in the laboratory. Instead, it appears the healthcare workers probably were afflicted with ordinary respiratory diseases like the common cold. Now, as they look back on the episode, epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists say the problem was that they placed too much faith in a quick and highly sensitive molecular test that led them astray. Infectious disease experts say such tests are coming into increasing use and may be the only way to get quick answer in diagnosing diseases like whooping cough, legionnaires, bird flu, tuberculosis, and SARS, and deciding whether an epidemic is underway. There are no national data on pseudo epidemics caused by a over reliance on such molecular tests," said Dr. Trish M. Pearl, an epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins, funded by Bill Gates now and past president of the and past president of the Society of Healthcare Epidemiologists of America. But she said pseudo epidemics happen all the time. COVID nineteen. The Dartmouth case may have been one of the largest, but it was by no means an exception, she said. There was a similar whooping cough scare at the Children's Hospital in Boston last fall that involved 36 adults and two children. Definitive tests, though, did not find pertussis." It's a problem. We know it's a problem, Dr. Prill said. My guess is that what happened at Dartmouth is going to become more common. Many of the new molecular tests are quick, but technically demanding, and each laboratory may do them in its own way. These tests, called home brews, are not commercially available, and there are no good estimates of their error rates. But their very sensitivity makes false positives likely. When hundreds or thousands of people are tested, as occurred at Dartmouth, false positives can make it seem like there is an epidemic. You're in a little bit of a no-man's land with the new molecular test, said Dr. Mark Perkins, an infectious disease specialist and chief scientific officer at the Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics, a non-profit foundation supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. All bets are off on exact performance. Of course, that leads to the question of why rely on them at all. At face value, obviously, they shouldn't be doing it," Dr. Pearl said. But she said often when answers are needed, and an organism like the putridus bacterium is finicky and hard to grow in a laboratory. We don't have great options. Waiting to see if the bacteria grow can take weeks, the article continues, but the quick molecular test can be wrong. It's almost like we're trying to pick the least of two evils, Dr. Pearl said. At Dartmouth, the article says, the decision was to use a test, PCR. It is a molecular test that until recently was confined to molecular biology laboratories. That's kind of what's happening, said Dr. Catherine Edwards, an infectious disease specialist and professor of paediatrics at Vanderbilt University. That's the reality out there. We are trying to figure out how to use methods that have been the purview of bench scientists. The dartmouth Whooping cough story shows what can ensue. To say the episode was disruptive was an understatement, said Dr Elizabeth Talbot, Deputy State Epidemiologist for the New Hampshire Department of Health and Human Services. You cannot imagine, Dr Talbot said, I had a feeling at the time that this gave us a shadow of a hint of what it might be like during a pandemic flu epidemic. Yet yeah, epidemiologists say one of the most troubling aspects of the pseudo-epidemic is that all the decisions seem so sensible at the time. Dr. Katrina Kretzinger, a medical epidemiologist at the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention CDC, who works on the case along with her colleague Dr. Manisha Patel does not fault the Dartmouth doctors. The issue was not that they overreacted or did anything inappropriate at all, Dr. Kretzinger said. Instead, it is is that there is often no way to decide early on whether an epidemic is underway. Before the 1940s, when a pertussis vaccine for children was introduced, whooping cough was the leading cause of death in young children. The vaccine led to an 80% drop in the disease's incidence, but did not completely eliminate it, according to the official narrative. That is because the vaccine's effectiveness wanes after about a decade, and although there is now a new vaccine for adolescents and adults, there's always a new vaccine, it is only starting to come into use. Whooping cough, Dr. Kretzinger said, is still a concern. The disease got its name from its most salient feature. Patients may cough and cough and cough until they have to gasp for breath, making it sound like a whoop. The coughing can last long that one of the common names for whooping cough, is the 100-day cough, Dr. Thomas said. But neither coughing long and hard nor even whooping is unique to pertussis infections. And many people with whooping cough have symptoms like those of the common cold, a runny nose or an ordinary cough. Almost everything about the clinical presentation of pertussis, especially early pertussis, is not very specific, Dr. Kirkland said. That was the first problem in deciding whether there was an epidemic or Dartmouth. The second was with PCR, the quick test to diagnose the disease, Dr. Kretzinger said. With protrusis, she said, there are probably 100 different PCR protocols and methods being used throughout the country, and it is unclear how often any of them are accurate. We have had a number of outbreaks where we believe that despite the presence of PCR-positive results, the disease was not protrusis, Dr Kretzinger added. At Dartmouth, when the first suspect protrusis cases emerged and the PCR test showed protrusis doctors believed it, the results seemed completely consistent with patient symptoms. That's how the whole thing got started, Dr. Kirkland said. Then the doctors decided to test people who did not have severe coughing. Because we had cases we thought were pertussis, and because we had vulnerable patients from the hospital, we lowered our threshold, she said. Anyone who had a cough got a PCR test and so did anyone with a runny nose who worked with high-risk patients like infants. That's how we ended up with 134 suspect cases, Dr. Kirkland said. Exactly. The more you test, the more cases you find. Not because there are more cases, but because you're testing more. And that, she added, was why 1,445 healthcare workers ended up taking antibiotics, and 4,524 healthcare workers at the hospital, or 72% of all the healthcare workers there, were immunised against whooping cough in a matter of days. If we had stopped there, I think we all would have agreed that we had had an outbreak of pertussis and that we had controlled it, Dr. Kirkland said. But epidemiologists at the hospital working for the states of New Hampshire and Vermont decided to take extra steps to confirm that what they were seeing really was pertussis. The Dartmouth doctors sent samples from 27 patients they thought had pertussis to the state health departments and the Centers for Disease Control. There, scientists tried to grow the bacteria, a process that can take weeks. Finally, they had their answer, and there was no pertussis in any of the samples. We thought, well, that's all, Dr. Kirkland said. Maybe it's the timing of the culturing. Maybe it's a transport problem. Why don't we try serological testing, blood testing? Certainly, after a pertussis infection, a person should develop antibodies to the bacteria. They could only get suitable blood samples from 39 patients, the article says. The others had gotten the vaccine, which itself elicits pertussis antibodies. But when the Centers for Disease Control tested those 39 samples, its scientists reported that only one showed increases in antibody levels indicative of pertussis. The Disease Center did additional tests, too, including molecular tests to look for features of the pertussis bacteria. Its scientists also did additional PCR tests on samples from 116 to 134 people who were thought to have whooping cough. Only one PCR was positive, even as useless as that is. But other tests did not show that the person was infected with pertussis bacteria, The disease centre also interviewed patients in depth to see what the symptoms were and how they evolved. It was going on for months, Dr. Cookland said, but in the end the conclusion was clear. There was no protrusive epidemic. We were all somewhat surprised, Dr. Kirkland said, and we were left in a very frustrating situation about what to do when the next outbreak comes. Dr. Kathy A. Petty, an infectious disease specialist at the University of Utah, said the story had one clear lesson. The big message is that every lab is vulnerable to having false positives, Dr. Petty said. No single test result is absolute, and that is even more important with a test result based on PCR. As for Dr. Herndon, though, she now knows she is off the hook. I thought I might have caused the epidemic, she said. The epidemic that wasn't. So, if we bring this back round to kids, are we going to... I say we parents are parents going to allow their kids to be subjected to a test not testing for the virus which is collecting their dna i mean are they going to allow them to be subject to the psychological effects of the policies in schools now keeping kids apart from each other asking them to stand or sit on x's on the floor or boxes chalk boxes drawn on the floor in the playground or outside the school are they going to let them be subjected to the effects of the health-destroying, DNA-manipulating vaccine? I mean, at what point are parents going to say enough? Are they going to stand up for the kids, or are they just going to comply because they bought the official narrative without doing any research and they believe they have to do what authority says? That's the choice, and it's a choice that needs to be made now. And the next subject this week is China. This is in the Daily Mail. Has Beijing been quietly grooming Britain's elite through an exclusive club known as the Forty-Eight Group? Tony Blair, Peter Mandelson, and Jack Straw have been linked to club, which is objecting to book that claims to reveal how China is infiltrating the West. Hands interlocked, his face in solemn repose, Peter Mandelson stands deferentially behind China's Xi Jinping on a visit to Beijing. When taken in 2018, the picture drew little, if any, comment. Why would it? Lord Mandelson has after all made quite a habit of cozying up to authoritarian leaders. But now it has acquired new significance for Lord Mandelson is the latest senior new labour figure to be linked to a pro-Beijing lobby group the 48 Group Club, whose chairman, British businessman Stephen Perry is managing director of the London Export Corporation. According to a new book, Hidden Hand, exposing how the Chinese Communist Party is reshaping the world, it is claimed that China's influence in Britain is far-reaching and Unstoppable, with the 48 Group club exploited by China as a networking hub through its Beijing grooms Britain's elites. Little wonder then, the claims which first surfaced in the Times are causing disquiet in London, where the hitherto low key club boasting 650 members is based. Lawyers for the 48 Group have written to the book's publisher to correct and respond to errors but deny claims from its authors that the club is determined to block its publication in the UK. The group boasts Lord Heseltine as a founder, patron and John Prescott as a patron. Lord Heseltine confirmed his links to the club, which he said was a network for people involved in trade with China. The 48 Group's website also lists Tony Blair as an honorary fellow. Mr Blair insists he attended only one 48 Group club party, an event for its youth wing in 2010, where he was pictured with Mr Perry. His spokesman told the mail on Sunday, the event was a short speech and Q&A for young British and Chinese business people. It came as a request through a friend. There was no payment. This was the first and only time Mr Blair had anything to do with something connected to the organisation. Well, it wouldn't be the first time that Blair has played down his links to an organisation which is fundamental influence. He was asked on camera by an alternative media organisation about his links to the Bilderberg Group and he admitted that he's attended meetings there but of course he played it couched it as in terms of a just a group about people coming together and trying to find a solution to problems when it's a part of an organization called the round table which i've talked about before it's a secret society at its core and is basically about bringing people from different areas of society together to implement and communicate the agenda of the cult that's really what it's there for though a lot of people in the that attend meetings with that organization won't know that They'll be persuaded to get on board with the agenda without realising there's an agenda. The inner core will know, but the vast majority of people who attend meetings in the Bilderberg Group won't have a clue. Anyway, the article continues. Former Home Secretary Jack Straw, who was also named in Hidden Hand as a Fellow of the 48 Group, said last week, I've never heard of them. Days later, however, a photograph emerged of Mr Straw being awarded a Fellowship of the Club. i would completely forgotten about that. It was 13 years ago, we told The Times later. Mr. Shaw told the Mail on Sunday he had a vague recollection of attending a dinner at the 48 Group in 2007 while he was a minister and of being made a fellow. However, he denied lobbying for the group or for China. I certainly have not lobbied for the 48 Group Club. Our relationship with China was more benign then. Their economy was far less strong and Hong Kong seemed to be reasonably stable, he said. I certainly never lobbied for the Chinese government. The claims come in a warning to British universities about the influence of China on campuses. Senior politicians, academics and former diplomats have put a spotlight on foreign interference, drawing particular attention to the financial dependency of educational institutions on Chinese research grants and students. In our judgment, so entrenched are the Chinese influence networks among British elites that Britain has passed the point of no return, and any attempt to extricate itself from Beijing's orbit would probably fail, wrote Hidden Hands' Clive Hamilton, a professor of public ethics at Australia's Charles Sturt University, and its co-author, Murray Colbrook a senior academic. Professor Hamilton is regarded as an expert on the Chinese Communist Party. Professor Hamilton said this book's UK publisher, One World, had received a letter from lawyers who claim Mr Perry and the 48 Group Club had been defamed. He will be responding... Robustly, he told the Mail on Sunday, the book is meticulously documented. We stand by our research. Mr Perry, 72, studied law at University College London. After graduating, he followed in the footsteps of his father, who led a trade mission of 48 businessmen to China in the early 1950s and from which the 48 Group Club takes its name. At the time, few UK companies traded behind the so-called bamboo curtain during the Cold War. Hidden Hand records that in 2018, Mr. Perry had an audience with President Xi. A meeting the authors say shows that the Communist Party regards the 48-group club as useful to its efforts to influence policy decisions in Britain. At their meeting, Mr. Xi lauded the work of the club and Mr. Perry in turn praised China's tremendous achievement and the Chinese leaders' vision of a community with a shared future for humanity. This thing about communism or fascism or capitalism, as I said earlier, where the world's being taken is towards a technocracy and we've seen that over the last several months where experts and silicon valley billionaires through social media social media censorship and social media in general and advisors and technocrats are driving the response in different countries to covid19 not politicians politicians are announcing the decisions and that's basically the model we're looking at technocracy at the start of 2020, the article continues. Mr. Perry gave a speech at a 48 Group Bash in central London supporting Chinese communications giant Huawei's attempts to fight infrastructure for British 5G networks. Hidden Hand claims Huawei, which has very strong links to the Chinese state, donated £50,000 to the all Party Parliamentary Group on East Asian Business in 2011. It has also donated 8600 in 2012 and 2013 to the Tory party, as well as 11250 to the Conservative Friends of the Chinese. To the dismay of other Western powers, the book says, Huawei's largesse appeared to have paid off in January 2020 when the British government gave the green light for Huawei's participation in in Britain's 5G network adding it most decisive victory for Beijing. The 48 Group Club denies any suggestion it tries to exercise influence on behalf of Beijing. Rather, it says it aims to foster commercial and cultural harmony between Britain and China. While well, the word harmony is often used for coordinating a centrally dictated agenda, the agenda of the club. Former Labour Cabinet Minister Peter Mandelson is named by the book's authors as a friend of China's international liaison department which befriends foreign groups and individuals for use as lobbyists for China. The ILD has put enormous effort into promoting China's Belt and Road Initiative, one of the world's biggest infrastructure development projects, which has seen China build roads, seaport and rail tracks in over 70 countries. Hidden Hand details how Lord Madelson has encouraged Britain to actively participate in the building of the Belt and Road Initiative. In a statement, his office said Lord Madelson is pleased to support the British government in their constructive engagement with China, through his role as honorary president of the government-funded Great British China Centre. They declined to comment on the peers' links with the 48 Group Club. According to Hidden Hand, another group, the United Front Work Department, recruits from 120,000 Chinese students studying in British universities to campaign on behalf of China. According to Hidden Hand, another group, the United Front Work Department, recruits from 120,000 Chinese students studying in British universities to campaign on behalf of China. If, for example, an anti-Chinese protest is held anywhere in the UK, then UFWD could potentially mobilise its young recruits to stage a counter-demonstration. Elsewhere in the book, the authors say China is waging a new Cold War against Britain and the West by infiltrating its top universities with military spies. Since 2007, more than 2,500 Chinese military scientists have come from abroad to research in Western universities, especially Britain, the US, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, which have a historic intelligence sharing pact known as the Five Eyes Agreement. Well, ultimately, all these intelligence networks are actually one network because they're all working to the same agenda. While some of the scientists have been open about their links to the Chinese military, others have tried to disguise their backgrounds by claiming to be based at Chinese universities. That, it turns out, exists only on paper. Hundreds of scientists have claimed they belong to the Xin Zhao Information Science and Technology Institute, which is a fake university, according to Hidden Hand. The Zhengzhou Information, Science and Technology Institute does not actually exist, say the authors. It has no website, no phone number and no buildings. It does have a P.O. box in Henan province's capital city, Zhengzhou, but that's about it. The name is in fact a cover for the university that trains China's military hackers and signals intelligence officers, the People's Liberation Army Information Engineering University, which is based in Zhengzhou, The authors cite an earlier work by Australian academic Alex Jossgay which exposed how Chinese military spies infiltrated Western universities in a report two years ago. Mr. Jossgay said that British universities were the second most targeted by Chinese spies after America. He claimed that at least 500 Chinese military scientists were posted to British universities between 2007 and 2017 his investigation found that a student from the PLA National University of Defence Technology studied graphene, the miracle material 200 times stronger than steel at Manchester University before returning to China where his expertise is close to the needs in the military a spokesman from Manchester University said, we value our connections with China, all of our interactions as such have to be based on government guidance and regulation the university carries out due diligence on all research Collaborations, we have a clear intellectual property policy which all our researchers overseas and domestic must adhere to as part of their professional contracts. Hidden Hand claims that Chinese honey traps have allegedly targeted a British politician and a number 10 aide on two separate occasions in China. During the 2008 Beijing Olympics, Ian Clement, a deputy to then-London Mayor Boris Johnson, became a victim. Mr Clement, then 44, was at a party in Beijing on the opening night of the Games, also attended by Olympics Minister Tessa Jowell and then-US President George Bush. He met an attractive Chinese woman whom he agreed to see again for a drink, but when Mr Clement returned to his hotel, his admirer was already sitting at the reception. After a couple of drinks at the bar, they went to his room where Mr. Clement lost consciousness. He later discovered that the woman had ransacked his files and downloaded material from his BlackBerry device. In the same year, an unidentified aide to then-Prime Minister Gordon Brown was approached by a Chinese woman at a disco in a Shanghai hotel. He took her back to his hotel room and discovered his BlackBerry stolen after she left the following morning. He duly alerted the Prime Minister's special branch team and was reprimanded. The book also reveals German and French intelligence uncovered how Chinese spies lured European government workers to China with promises of money using the professional social media site LinkedIn. Tens of thousands of government workers, academics and researchers in France and Germany were approached through LinkedIn by Chinese individuals posing as consultants, think tank staff and even entrepreneurs. Hundreds were then lured to China with offers of money and jobs and all expenses paid flights and entertained for days by their hosts who then pumped them for information. The authors write those who accepted spent a few days being befriended through social activities and then were asked to provide information. It is believed that in some cases they were photographed in compromising situations such as accepting payments making them prone to blackmail. Hidden hand has arrived at a difficult juncture in British-Chinese relations. Boris Johnson has announced that up to 3 million Hong Kong residents are to be offered the chance to settle in the UK and ultimately apply for citizenship. He said Hong Kong's freedoms were being violated by a new Beijing security law and those affected would be offered a route out of the former UK colony. The 48 Group Club last night denied helping the Chinese International Liaison Department, saying, The club has no formal relationship with the ILD, and we unequivocally deny any accusation that we help the ILD lobby the British government or lobby on behalf of the ILD. Mr Perry said, It has been reported in the media that we have initiated legal proceedings against the authors of a book entitled Hidden Hand. That is not the case. It became clear that the book contained a number of inaccurate and potentially libelous statements relating to the role and function of the 48 Group Club and some of its members. On taking legal advice, the club wrote to the publishers of the book to request sight of the text and opportunity to correct and respond to the errors in the book. Errors have been acknowledged by the publishers and we are working to correct the others. He added, Being an independent body, the 48 Group Club does not have a formal relationship with any other organisation, whether inside or outside China. The Chinese embassy in London did not respond for comment well the other country i mentioned which all these british political names mention in this article and which china in the various ways it influences society mentioned in the article is israel and its elite zionist network which i talk about in episode 28 in relation to the labor party and the cult which controls israel and and elite zionism which is a global network which i describe in episode 59 part 2 the cult is the connection between China, Britain and Israel because all three countries are controlled by graphene mentioned in the article. is very relevant because it's a synthetic material which can be used for electric cars and smart cars, smartphones, touchscreen technology, wearable technology, electronic skin, smart implants, not least for drug delivery, and ultimately to create a synthetic human, all of which I've talked about before as goals of the cult. And the fact that this British university, to the benefit of China, would pioneer graphene is no surprise as it is to the benefit of the cult which controls China and has no borders and operates in every country. China has been an incubator for the cult's agenda. This is why it has become so technologically advanced, so far advanced of the West, although the West is always catching up. China has long been an authoritarian military police state with no freedom of speech or expression, with open propaganda, total surveillance and a credit system. I talk about the credit system in episode 44 and this plays out in Britain in the form of universal credit and look at current events. I've said before in episode 63 that China today is the West tomorrow and since this pandemic hoax, we've seen that play out ever more obviously in the West. China is also operating a high-speed rail system, which I've talked about before. The agenda is to make public travel, especially rail travel, the only means of travel apart from driverless cars which don't take you anywhere authority does not want you to go and the idea of public travel being the only travel is because then people who don't play ball with authority and the technocrats won't be able to travel it's all about control this is what the cashless society is all about and why china has its own digital currency called dcep or digital currency electronic payment china is also involved in sending up satellites i've talked about the real reason for that in episode 61 and this is why Elon Musk is fundamentally involved in sending up satellites, because he's a technocrat. Indeed, his grandfather, Joshua Haldeman, was a head of the technocratic party in Canada. Technocrat Zbigniew Brzezinski was Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, and during Carter's presidency, Brzezinski played a central role in normalizing relations between America and what was then the People's Republic of China. During Clinton's presidency, the United States-China Relations Act of 2000 was passed by Congress, granting China permanent normal trade relations with America. Outsourcing to China, like Nike does in sweatshops, for example, is not just to save money. The more China does for corporations, the more America is dependent on China and other countries on China. Dependency equals control. This is an article on defensenews.com. The Pentagon has created a new office solely focused on China. Is that a good idea? Since the release of the National Defense Strategy in early 2018, top Pentagon officials have stressed that the department needs to keep its focus on the long-term challenge from China. Now, with the creation of a new office focused solely on China, officials in the department hope to take a major step forward in that effort. In June, the Department of Defense this was published in October 2019. Discreetly created a new job, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for China. Deputy Assistant Secretaries of Defense, or DASD, serve as civilian subject matter experts, three levels down from the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, traditionally one of the most powerful positions in the Pentagon. The new job, according to a department statement, will serve as principal advisor to the Secretary of Defense on all things China. And will be the single hub for policy and strategy development, oversight, authorities review, and national level interagency integration to align the department's efforts on China. Randall Shriver, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asian and Pacific Security Affairs, told Defense News that the new position is something he has considered for some time. Speaking at the Brookings Institute, Shriver described the role as both inward and outward facing. Outwardly, the office will help craft and maintain the military-to-military relationship with China, something Shriver said top Chinese military officials want to serve as a stabilizing force in overall relations with America. Inward part is to help us drive alignment on China across the department as we carry out our national defense strategy and its implementation. A lot of that is to help us internally with the joint staff and the services to make their respective decisions around China, said Shriver. Before the office was created, there were three DASDs, each with a unique focus in the region, one on Afghanistan, Pakistan and Central Asia, one on Southeast Asia with India, members of the Association of Southeast Asia, Asian Nations, Australia and New Zealand, and one on East Asia, tracking Japan, South Korea, Mongolia, China and Taiwan. The new job is the only one focused on a single country of the now 21 existing DASD level positions, and along with the creation of the new role, came a reorganisation of the Southeast and East Asia portfolios, breaking down regional barriers to align nations like Australia and Japan have strong ties. That broad rearrangement is where both the risks and rewards of the change happen, according to a quartet of former defence officials. Eric Sayre is a former special assistant to the commander at US Pacific Command and now an adjunct senior fellow with the Centre for a New American Security Think Tank. thinks the change is good in part because of how it specifically decouples the management of China from the other responsibilities assigned to regional DASDs. So here's a bit of the history of the China-Britain Business Council. The organization's history dates back to the early 1950s when British companies were among the first to trade with the Communist China. That was the Forty Eight group of companies established in April 1954. At the same time, the British government had a semi-official trade body known as the Sino-British Trade Council, which promoted British participation in trade fairs and exhibitions in China. Although the UK was the first Western country to recognise the People's Republic of China, the PRC did not fully recognise the UK until 1972. The China-Britain Trade Group was established in 1991 when the 48 Group merged with the Sino-British Trade Council at the instigation of the then UK Department of Trade and Industry. After the first six months, the China-Britain Trade Group, CBTG, had a membership of 100 British companies, large and small, paying an annual subscription. Members were able to attend exclusive meetings with Chinese visitors, attend specialist workshops and had priority access to special events. A big incentive of membership for many was the provision of services by the CBTG's two China offices. The early 1990s saw a renewal of high-level visits from China to the UK. In November 1992, Vice Premier Zhu Rongji was the first Chinese leader to take part in a seminar with British business in the UK, when the Stock Exchange was the venue for presentations from privatised industries organised by CBTG and the Stock Exchange. The biggest events in the mid-1990s were the huge business groups taken to China by Michael Heseltine as Trade Minister in 1995, then as Deputy Prime Minister in 1996. After the first six months, CBTG had a membership of 100 British companies, large and small, paying an annual subscription. Members were able to attend exclusive meetings with Chinese visitors at 10 specialist workshops and had priority access to special events. The biggest events of the mid-1990s were the huge business groups taken to China by Michael Heseltine as Trade Minister in ninety five, then as Deputy Prime Minister in ninety six. CBTG was involved in putting together the business groups which accompanied the Deputy Prime Minister. In ninety six. a decision was made to allow member companies to appoint representatives in China and rent spacing CBTG offices, which would provide services to them. Visiting CBTG Beijing that year, Michael Heseltine coined a name for this service, the China Launchpad. This has since become a popular service which the China Britain Business Council still offers UK companies. In 1998, the organisation changed its name to the China Britain Business Council to reflect the growth of all round business between the UK and China, encompassing investment, trade, licensing, and other forms of business activity. Lord Powell, a former foreign affairs advisor to Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher took over the presidency of the China-Britain Business Council in 1998. His first task was to accompany Prime Minister Tony Blair to China with a business delegation. The following year saw visits to the UK by then-Vice Premier Wen Jiabao and President Jiang Zemin, CCP IT Chairman Wen Jifei, followed in 2001. In, in October that year, then-Vice President Hu Jintao also came to the UK. Sir David Brewer, former Lord Mayor of the City of London, became China-Britain Business Council chairman in 2007 and continued to push forward the council's contribution to UK-China trade and business exchange. And he has now, through his career, made well over 100 trips to China. In the new millennium, China's economic strength has grown exponentially, intensified by World Trade Organization accession in 2001. As China opens its door wider to foreign participation. New trade promotion sectors have emerged, including education, leisure, branding, and communications technologies. And the Council's regular trade missions in numerous sectors reflect this. Outsourcing has become a major field of operations, as most companies looking to outsource production will consider China. Simultaneously, as the world's fastest-growing market, most exporters will look at the Chinese market. This is interesting. In 2013, Lord Sassoon, this is James Sassoon, became the Council's chairman. This was also the year the Council celebrated the 60th anniversary of its founding. China-Britain business relations have become strong in recent years with the support of the Council. In 2014, Chinese Premier Li Keqiang visited the UK with Lord Sassoon jointly hosting a state dinner in honour of Mr Li attended by 650 British and Chinese political and business dignitaries. In 2015, Lord Sassoon as chairman of the Council hosted the UK China Business Summit during President Xi Jinping's visit to the UK. Lord Sassoon accompanied the Chancellor to China in December 2017 and was part of the Prime Minister's delegation to China at the end of January 2018. Now, Sassoon, Lord Sassoon, elite Zionist. So there's a connection to Israel. And it won't be the last either. Talking of elite Zionists, another elite Zionist, Zbigniew Brzezinski in 1978 began talks which led to the normalisation of relations between the United States and China. Brzezinski co-founded the Trilateral Commission in 1973 with David Rockefeller as part of the Round Table Network of Secret Societies, which was created by the Rothschilds, who are the innermost core of the cult. And The Trilateral Commission exists officially to coordinate policy between America, Western Europe and Japan, but coordinating cult agenda talk means dictating a policy from a central point. I've said before that the Chinese model is planned to come to the West, and we've seen it over the last several months. The unelected technocrats advising on and dictating policy and the increases in technological surveillance in the police-military state, the fusing of both into one state. China is already a technocracy with this advancement in technology and surveillance in a society dominated by technical experts. The last three presidents of China all studied engineering. In response to the pandemic, China launched a digital currency which I've talked about before as being part of the cult's agenda. There are ghost cities in China now, which is preparation for the smart cities, smart grid agenda. 5G has been introduced in China, including in Wuhan, by the way, and China has for a while now been talking about 6G. 5G is the minimal power necessary to run the smart grid, and that's why Elon Musk, a technocrat, is sending up thousands of satellites. 20,000 was the last target figure I saw, which will beam 5G and Wi-Fi to the Earth. These will interact with ground-based antenna and set up an as-above-so-below system, so there will be no escape from 5G. And here's an interesting article on Singularity Hub. Silicon Valley's China paradox, what it is and how it will shape the future of tech. Silicon Valley has long been the world leader in tech innovation, the cradle of startup culture, a hub for venture capital and the home of dozens of global tech titans. They are not only raking in billions of dollars, they have also influence in politics, culture and lifestyles around the world, whether they intended to or not. They are intended to, that's the idea. Technocracy. The Valley's tech dominance has gone relatively unchallenged for decades, but China is now giving American tech a run for its money and it happens to have some values that sharply conflict with those in the US. Matt Sheehan, a writer, former journalist and current fellow at Macropolo, The in-house think tank at Chicago's Pawson Institute is an expert when it comes to the U.S.-China relationship and not just in terms of technological competition. After growing up and going to school in Silicon Valley, Xi'an spent six years as a foreign correspondent for the World Post in China. In a talk at 1871, China's leading technology and entrepreneurship center, Xi'an spoke about his new book, The Trans-Pacific Experiment, How China and California Collaborate and Compete for Our Future. The competition of technological dominance between China and the US is many layers, and Xi'an brings to light the fact that neither country would be where it is today, innovation-wise, without the other. But this symbiotic relationship is laced with complexity, and now is the time to steer it in a direction that will continue to benefit rather than harm both countries. The diplomatic relationship between China and the US takes place in government offices and private meetings, and under the current administration on Twitter. But Sheehan believes that a lot of the most important pieces of the US-China relationship are happening at the grassroots level. It's about Chinese students at US universities. How do they relate to their classmates, professors and institutions? It's Chinese homebuyers coming to my hometown, Palo Alto, and buying houses. How do they relate to their neighbours, he said. While these interactions might seem insignificant compared to, say, a visit by Donald Trump to Chinese Communist Party leader and President Xi Jinping, Xi'an thinks it's the local interaction of people, money and ideas that really shapes what happens at the national level. But when there's a disconnect between what's happening at a local level and what happens at the national level, things get tricky. And this is the root of what and sees as Silicon Valley's China paradox. Though there's been a consistent exchange of people, money and ideas between the US and China, the two countries are becoming steadily more divided, as are the tech companies that have blossomed in each one. While you have these free flows of people and money and ideas, companies themselves are functionally blocked from each other's markets, and said. US companies are blocked in China and Chinese companies can't gain traction in the US. Take the story of entrepreneur Li Jifei. Li was born and raised in central China, worked at a Beijing startup in the late 90s, then came to the US to do a PhD in computer engineering at Johns Hopkins University, funded by Bill Gates, by the way, he wired compiling the global case and death figures in relation to COVID-19 alleged case figures from a test not testing for the virus. Anyway, the article continues. He then moved to Silicon Valley to work as a researcher for Google Translate, staying there for two years before moving back to China to found his own now wildly successful startup, Mobvoi. A key factor in Mobvoi's success was China's decision to block Google, thereby making space for homegrown innovation in what would otherwise be Google territory. Somewhat surprisingly, Google invested in Mobvoi in 2015, perhaps partially in hopes that Mobvoi will eventually help Google re-enter the Chinese market. Mobvoi is one product among many of China's Great Firewall, which this refers to the CCP's efforts to keep global tech leaders out of China's digital space and to control domestic information and communication channels. A major side effect intended or not has been to nurture China's digital economy and encourage domestic brands to dominate the market. Instead of Google, China has Baidu. Instead of Twitter, Weibo. Instead of Facebook, WeChat. Instead of Amazon, Alibaba, and so on. Many of the Chinese entrepreneurs behind these companies and others studied at American universities and worked at Silicon Valley companies before going home to launch their own startups. But it's not just Chinese companies and citizens that are benefiting. According to Xi'an, China is the leading source of foreign AI talent in the US. American tech companies have looked at Chinese products like WeChat for inspiration for their own products. Apple and other American consumer electronics brands would not be able to sell their products nearly as cheaply without Chinese manufacturing operations. But the US-China relationship is becoming more strained, the sources of China's massive economic growth over the past three decades. Infrastructure, investment, urbanisation, cheap labour thanks to being working age population are getting close to being tapped out, and to continue its forward trajectory, China needs new sources of growth. As its economy transitions from manufacturing to service, tech is at its centre, creating jobs and fueling demand for goods and services. For American companies to get access to the huge Chinese market, they must comply with The CCP's demands, which can be in direct contrast with their mission statements. Google, for example, purportedly aims to make any kind of information freely accessible to anyone. But if they want to do business in China, they have to censor search results. They already do that, and they admit that they do it, because that's one reason Silicon Valley was created. Same with Facebook, same with Twitter censoring YouTube, owned by Google. So that's not a problem for them. That's what they were created to do, among other things. In fact, the CCP, the article continues, has succeeded in doing what American tech entrepreneurs once thought impossible, undermine the concept of the internet itself, which was meant to be an unconstrained flow of ideas and information across national boundaries, but in China it is tightly monitored and controlled. As I've said, the idea is to bring the Chinese model to the West. That's why they both censored the internet, not to the extent of China yet. Social media could not go there in one big leap because the change would be too obvious too quickly and no. A lot less people want to sign up for it. But once you get a monopoly, or near monopoly, then the real reason for those social media platforms' existence, among other reasons, becomes clear. Both China and the US companies, as well as governments, want to exert their influence abroad. But that influence takes very different shapes from one country to the other. China's treatment of its Uyghur people, however you say that, U-I-G-H-U-R, Uyghurs, a Turkic-speaking minority ethnic group originating from and culturally affiliated with the general region of Central and East Asia. The Uyghurs are recognised as native to the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region in northwest China. Both China and U.S. companies, as well as governments, want to exert their influence support, but that influence takes very different shapes from one country to the other. China's treatment of its Uyghur people, its use of facial recognition technology and the social credit scoring system to police citizens. The protests in Hong Kong and its efforts to export authoritarian ideology to developing nations all illustrate the stark disconnect in values between the two nations. Well, in terms of the totalitarian nature of China, not so much of a stark disconnect now as a result of the last several months. Meanwhile, China is moving fast in key fields like genetic engineering and AI, thanks to its huge population and lax approach to data privacy. By Xi'an's somewhat bleak assessment, there are two ways to resolve the tension between China and the US. Open up full integration of the two places or separate them completely, closing down the trans-Pacific flow of people and ideas he believes we're moving towards the latter. Well, in terms of tension between China and the US... As I've said before, the idea is for a conflict between China and America. Because the idea is to have a massive conflict between America, Britain, China and other countries. Potentially a world war. That may not necessarily take the form of nuclear weapons, it could take another form of a world war. Which would justify transforming human society on a massive scale. As a result, in the image of the cult's agenda, the article continues. The U.S. is blocking investment in China in Silicon Valley and limiting how many Chinese students can study here, he said. There are ethical and business reasons for that, but we're just now learning about the potential cost of decoupling. What does it mean if we pull apart this relationship at all levels? The article continues, The implications will be far-reaching. Whether that happens or not, Xi'an writes in the final chapter of his book, How the United States and China relate to each other in years to come will have profound consequences for people in every corner of the globe. The seeds that being planted the article says on both sides of the pacific it continues have begun to sprout but it will be years or decades before they bear fruit she concluded his talk by urging us to she concluded his talk by urging us to seek understanding from multiple perspectives and at multiple levels as we go forward the way that we need to balance these and strike a good policy path in the us is to understand the relationship from the ground up and from the top down to see it both from silicon valley's perspective and from dc's perspective he said This is an interesting article on Wired.com. Everyone wants to crack down on China, except Silicon Valley. I've talked in pay-per-view before about how what are known as the climate cult. Never focus attention on China. Greta Thunberg never talks about China, never been to China. When you would think that that would happen, talk about that in episode 63. And here's this article in Wired. Everyone wants to crack down on China, except Silicon Valley. Because the cult, which is behind the... Of course, climate change scam is the same cult that controls indeed created Silicon Valley, and also because China is basically the model for the West, as I've said. Two months before the presidential election, the US is bitterly divided, except about China. From both sides of the aisle, there are calls to disentangle the two countries' high tech economies. Democrats and Republicans use strikingly similar language to condemn China. There is bipartisan support for recent steps by the Trump administration, including tough controls on the telecom giant Huawei. Restrictions on data flows from Chinese apps like TikTok and WeChat. Chinese app TikTok, interestingly. And by American policies to limit dependence on supply chains from China. It's the fact that when you're doing business with a Chinese company, you're doing business with the Chinese Communist Party. Senator Marco Rubio in Florida, a leading voice on China policy, told the National Defense University last December. China's push for global standards in areas such as 5G technology, Artificial intelligence and quantum computing are part of an effort to dominate the world, warned Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, a former telecom executive who has become the face of the Democratic Party on China in a speech last year. The two senators of the two senators have co sponsored legislation to develop 5G alternatives to Huawei and funnel more than $1 billion in government money to them, an in industrial policy approach that previously was anathema to Republicans. $1 billion. I mean, it's not like that money could be spent on anything more useful to people, is it? But this consensus proves to be shallow when you look deeper into the policies backed by both camps. and the election campaign, Trump and his deputies blamed China for deliberately spreading the COVID-19 virus. Bollocks. And seeking the economic destruction in the US. In July, Attorney General William Barr labelled Silicon Valley and Hollywood pools of Chinese influence. He said companies such as Google, Microsoft, Yahoo and Apple have shown themselves all too willing to collaborate with the Chinese Communist Party. Because the same... Network which created, or which owns that which created Silicon Valley, is centred in China, as well as Israel and other places. Democratic candidate Joe Biden and his senior foreign policy advisors do see China as the U.S.'s primary strategic competitor. Biden fending off Trump's assault on him as weak on China is a sell the president for cozying up to Chinese President Xi Jinping while ignoring the pandemic. There is a consensus for toughness, says Jeffrey Bader, a former national security advisor to Obama on Asia. Who wants to be seen as soft? But the Biden camp rejects the more apocalyptic vision of China as a deadly enemy that must be defeated in a new Cold War. They envision areas of cooperation with China on climate change and other subjects. Biden advisers also favour more targeted curbs on flow of investment and trade to China. Overreach on technology restrictions could drive other countries towards China, were Biden's senior advisors Kirk Campbell and Jake Sullivan in an article published last fall in Foreign Affairs. This was published in March of this year. The tech industry, under fire on issues from monopolization to the misuse of social media, are widely and widely seen as leading democratic, it has kept a low profile during the campaign, but executives have objected to steps such as controls on the sales of semiconductors to Huawei. Semiconductors are basically used in technology to allow electricity to flow through information to throw through channels but executives have objected to steps such as controls on the sales of semiconductors to Huawei, which the Semiconductor Industry Association warned will bring significant disruptions in the US semiconductor industry. US businesses in China issued a report in late August arguing that a blanket ban on WeChat, which is widely used by American firms, would have an enormous negative impact. Some firms that are effectively barred from the Chinese market and have competing products such as Facebook, more eagerly jumped on the anti China bandwagon. Still, many in the tech community see a broad decoupling from China as dangerously simplistic, leading to a balkanized internet and posing risks to American firms in the US economy. We are enabling the decoupling, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt, a key voice on China in technology, told Wired. The coupling, particularly in tech, splinters the internet platforms, reduces revenue for our companies and produces few opportunities for our tech firms to succeed, he believes. Many Trump administration actions will force a Chinese response that can ultimately damage the US, argues Schmidt. One such risk is Trump's executive order on TikTok, which the administration present. can you believe they have an executive order for an app? Madness. Which the administration presents as an issue of data sovereignty. Administration officials cite fears that the Chinese can access data from the video-sharing app, mainly used by American teens, that could be used for more insidious purposes. But this attempt to control data could set a dangerous precedent for US companies operating in Europe, where some officials don't want data stored in the US. Schmidt says Adam Mosseri, had a Facebook on Instagram. said Friday that any short-term benefit to Facebook from banning TikTok is greatly outweighed by the risks of a fragmented internet. A different problem is posed by the proposed restrictions on WeChat, which is not only the largest messaging platform in China, but also the primary mobile payment system. Detailed rules have not yet been published, but the order can ban WeChat on Chinese iPhones or phones running Google's Android. For American retailers such as Starbucks or McDonald's, the inability to use WeChat's mobile payments that will potentially drive away most Chinese consumers. The beneficiaries of this crude approach will be the very Chinese firms, such as Huawei, that the administration wants to punish. At least they say they do. Meanwhile, firms like Apple, which depend on China for almost one-sixth of its revenue, could be devastated. Tech's tentative pushback is being overwhelmed by fevered anti-China mood, even if it may harm American interests, some analysts say. This non-debate that we are having is driven primarily by a desire to hurt China, whatever the cost. It says even Fagan, a China expert and former Asia advisor to President George W. Bush, now with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. That's an interesting organisation. Say that much. Anyway, goes on. Instead, many policy experts argue for a different approach. The US-led effort to compete with global standards and global platforms that dominate the marketplace. In this view, it makes more sense to challenge Chinese attempts to set global standards rather than divide the internet into competing realms. Schmidt, the former Google CEO, is a major democratic donor who long defended Google's efforts to do business in China. He acknowledges the serious security and competitive challenges posed by China, but he says the U.S. needs a well-thought-out strategy to identify, develop and protect key areas of technology. He is a member of the Defense Innovation Board, which advises the Defense Secretary on how to foster technological innovation. He suggests the US identify five or ten key technologies such as artificial intelligence and focus on those including imposing security controls. High wars, small plot is the new slogan for that approach. Well, in the pay-per-view book, I detail many of the connections between Silicon Valley and the Pentagon, which is a branch of the US Department of Defense and obviously the military intelligence networks. And I also, by the way, going back to Silicon Valley censorship, which I touched on earlier. I detail various methods of Silicon Valley censorship in the book as well. The article continues, tech policymakers, some of whom are engaged with the Biden campaign, told Wired that they anticipate a Biden administration will pursue a more nuanced approach. A Biden administration would think rationally. (laughs) In other words, people thinking for Biden seems unable to think rationally. Through how do we remain the best innovation power on earth, predicts Andrew Manuel, a specialist on Asia and on technology and security interactions and the director of the Aspen Security Forum. Manuel is close to the Biden campaign, despite having served in previous Republican administrations and co-founding an influential consulting firm with three former Bush cabinet officials. The Bush government was dominated by elite zionists these advisors advocate working with allies in europe and japan to set global export controls that prevent china from evading u.s sanctions by buying technology elsewhere they want to boost r&d spending fund basic research and allow chinese and other students into u.s universities brain power they contend ultimately benefits the u.s those voices will be heard in the Biden administration says former obama official Bader. biden unlike trump actually is a dealmaker That's his nature. He will never be the guy who says we have to take an ideological stand. The article continues. Still, some worry that the decoupling of the Chinese and US economies has acquired a momentum that will survive even if Biden wins the presidency. The trajectory is being baked in now, argues Feigenbaum, who advises firms doing business in China. In a year, it will be hard to throw the reverse switch on a lot of this stuff. The article continues, Others others anticipate room to roll back the worst excesses of the anti-China wave, yet the power of the hardline anti-China narrative at this moment is hard to deny. Nuance and distinctions will not help win the political battle, says Eileen Donahoe, a former Obama official who directs Stanford University's global digital policy incubator. Donald Trump has succeeded in controlling the dominant political narrative with the simplistic political idea, China bad. Well, you can have all the anti-China rhetoric you like, but it doesn't change the fact that The West is becoming more and more like China, especially as a result of the last several months. And here's another connection to Israel Israel is known as the startup nation for tech companies and individuals. I said earlier that Israel scours universities for tech talent. Tech names from Silicon Valley often interface with Israel's Silicon Valley called Silicon Valley, which I talk about in All Roads Lead to Israel Part 2. The US Silicon Valley model popping up in different countries is no surprise. Israel, China, America, and other countries, including Britain, are major centres for the cult and their manipulation. And this is why those countries are so globally significant and influential. And it's no surprise, therefore, to see similarities between each of those countries. Israel is a military state. Britain is becoming increasingly more of a police military state as a result of the last several months. But it's been going that way for a while anyway, just slower. America's long been way advanced over Britain in that respect. The Chinese model has been exported to various countries over the last several months. China today is the West, not just tomorrow, but in the very near future, in terms of surveillance and strict military control. As I describe in War Rooms: Lead to Israel Part 2, the smart grid is designed to be run out of Israel ultimately. And so once again, even though this was originally a story about China, it comes back round to Israel eventually, because the cult owns Israel. The cult paid for the Knesset and the Supreme Court building. And the cult owns the global military intelligence network. Because in the end, although each country's military intelligence network may appear to be separate, at their controlling level, they're all following the same agenda, ultimately. And that's the cult's agenda. Israel is a military state. Thus, if you control the military in Israel, you control everything in Israel. And this cult owns Israel in that way, never mind in any other way. So everything China is and has become even more as a result of the pandemic hoax, is planned for the West in the very near future. I mean, just look at how draconian life in the West has become over the past several months. And we've seen nothing yet in the West unless we decide we're not having it anymore, because a relative handful, in the end literal handful of people, can only control tens of millions or billions globally if those millions allow it. It's time to say no, now, and mean it. And the final subject this week is culture and COVID-19. This is the London Evening Standard. Royal Albert Hall to go bust by 150th anniversary without urgent funding. One of London's most iconic venues could be forced to shut its doors forever within months if it does not receive urgent funds, it is reported. The Royal Albert Hall will go bust by its one hundred and fiftieth anniversary in March if it continues to hemorrhage money during lockdown closures, its chief executive told iNews. The West London Concert Hall has lost an estimated twelve million pounds in potential income since it was forced to shut mid March this year. Boris Johnson announced that theatres and concert halls were able to reopen, but not for live performances, leaving the Albert Horn in the most perilous situation it has ever faced, according to CEO Craig Hassel. Of course, live performances is what brings customers in. Mr Hassell told The Eye, the government support has been very oblique and vague. We have lobbied hard and consistently across the sector. However, he said, Downing Street's roadmap for recovery offered no firm dates for theatres to resume the staging of performances to live audiences. There is no guidance from government on when we can open or how we can open, he said. Well, no, because ultimately, those driving the government's policy on COVID-19 will be aware, at least to some extent, of the agenda on this. So they know that the plan is to destroy culture. And I've talked in episode 45 about why that is, those in government driving the policy, like Witty and Valence, and Hancock, or Hancock at least is announcing the policy. They know the test is not testing for the virus. They know the cases are not cases, and they know what the effect on small businesses and population financially will be, and the effect on the economy. And that's why, when all this madness is over, they must go before a Nuremberg-type trial for crimes against humanity, for the suffering they've caused and knowingly caused. The quote continues, Without that, it's impossible for us to trade, and that means the whole sector. The article continues: The venue was taken out of five million pound loan to stay afloat, but needs an additional five to ten million to avoid going under by early next year, according to the news site. It could be declared insolvent earlier if the government's furlough scheme is not maintained for those venues which are unable to reopen. A reduction in mandatory social distancing, two metres to one, leaves the Victorian venue still only able to fill a third of its seats. Only mandatory in practice if people do it. However, most theatre and concert spaces require a capacity of 80% to turn a profit. Until venues can open without social distancing, the live music industry is finished, Mr Hassell stressed. The idea it's all about destroying culture. In an interview, the Hall's CEO said he expected to begin hosting reduced audiences in October or November, but insisted this was only an interim measure to get people into the venue. He said around 80% of concerts hosted by the venue were from external promoters who are hiring the space, and that many of them would be unable to break even with the one meter rule in place. Describing the effect of the pandemic, Mr Hassell said, it is the most negatively impactful event in the history of the Royal Albert Hall, and for the cultural sector, it is devastating and perilous. I cannot exaggerate this. The chief executive said he had been speaking with the heads of other major London venues, including the Royal Opera House, National Theatre, Barbican and the Old Vic to swap solutions. He said he had also been in contact with the Lincoln Centre and Carnegie Hall in New York and the Sydney Opera House. Mr. Hassel also warned of the dangers facing regional theatre groups who may not be able to stage pantomimes this year. He said, and the killer thing is pantomime. So for a lot of regional theatres if they don't have their panto season at Christmas that's the cash cow for the entire year. The time to plan your panto season is today. It's not next month. It's right now. You need to plan for it right now. So this is a desperate situation for the creative sector across the whole of the UK. Well, of course Christmas is cancelled because well, a few reasons. One of them is the psychological impact, the impact on mental health because Christmas is a time of family and People coming together and obviously a lot of people like Christmas and celebrate Christmas and enjoy Christmas and the psychological effects alone of cancelling Christmas because it's it's something that just doesn't happen. It's like it's something you see in films, Christmas is cancelled, but for it to actually be reality, the effects of that psychologically, emotionally, mentally on a lot of people will be devastating. But the other reason is through the winter, possibly October, but through the winter, they're going to go crazy with rediagnosis of symptoms and deaths of other causes, especially respiratory illnesses, which a lot of people get at that time. They're going to relabel them COVID 19, which is what they did during the winter just gone. And we're going to see a draconian lockdown far more extreme than the last one in terms of a nationwide lockdown, because that's what they're heading towards now. And it's going to dwarf. The first nationwide lockdown we had in the winter just gone. In terms, not only of the lockdown itself, but the policies that were in place at that time. And the cult, global cult, it wants an end to culture, war culture. And it wants to impose its its culture on the world. Sabatine Frankism, which I describe in episode 59, part 2. An episode called All Roads Lead to Israel. Because in many ways they do. Or rather that which controls Israel, which is the cult. And I've talked in episode... 45 about the role that migration plays in that and that's why migration is happening on the scale it is in europe and in america and other places with mexicans crossing over into america exactly the same scam is happening there as with people from middle east and other places coming into europe it's all about destroying culture fusing culture to destroy culture in terms of migration, but there there's other ways to destroy culture. One of them is university courses being changed or just not happening at all. Cultural figures like statues being torn down. Another one is hitting places of culture like theatres, which is what this article is talking about, financially, so they can't survive. And good luck to venues like the Alba Hall and others because they're not getting income from customers, which is really the only way that they could survive. They're not going to get it from government because they're following the script and the areas of society which are being hit the most are those suit the agenda for them to be hit. For example, it suits the agenda for 5G to be rolled out, classed as essential central warp. Why? But it is. So that goes ahead. It suits the agenda for Black Lives Matter protests. Apparently that's fine, that's not going to cause a problem for any more protests against lockdown and draconian measures as a result of the imaginary virus they have to be pleased and demonized and they're a problem and restaurants and bars it's all about stopping people coming together and dividing people and keeping people isolated from each other that's what the lockdowns are about to an extent as well as the destruction of business and the economy and causing problems for people health-wise, because they're not going to hospital, they're not going to the consultations or appointments. And then those people who die will be classified as COVID-19. And theatres are being hit because of the relevance to culture, as I've said. So if it suits the agenda, it happens anyway. If it doesn't, then it gets targeted. And this is why, knowing the agenda, which I've laid out during the course of pay-per-view since February 2018, is so important because when you know the agenda you can see why apparently measures to protect people from the virus are really happening that's the agenda which I lay out in fine detail in pay-per-view in print so that's it for this week that's the news that's the context and connections that's pay-per-view more to come next week until then goodbye